and experience. That's really helped me to sympathize with your plight. I'm sure you've uh, you've you've like been following it from afar. The bushes. You're just there throwing popcorn into your mouth, going, ha, classic. No, actually, hilariously. So I go on some forums regularly. Your video was on the forum. People were discussing it, debating and stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah, causing some conflict here, I see, Paige. You and I have talked a few times about this, but I think that the, the issue is a type of gentleman, and they're all dudes, called train guys. Now, do you want to explain what a train guy is, Race? They're guys that just, uh, they like trains uh, more than more than anything else in the world, truly. And, and if you stand on their metaphorical train tracks in front of their train, <laughs> yeah, you so... will be run over by their train. Are you a train guy? I have train guy tendencies, I would say. But as a transit person, you eventually realize that, like, we don't actually need a train everywhere. Yeah, trains are nice, and then sometimes they're not nice. And so, like like most things, uh, a healthy balance is important. But train guys, they don't believe in healthy balance. They believe in more trains, more of the time, all of the time, everywhere. There should be more trains. Train guys take their garbage out by train. And old trains especially, not new ones. They have to be retro. Here's our train guy picture, which says only trains forever. The first thing which is hard with these dudes is they are often on the autism spectrum. In 1997, a certain British children's show, I developed a passion for that show. And what was it? Thomas the Tank Engine. And have a, have a deficiency in social skills or a strangeness with their interactions that just immediately is like off-putting because you're like, hey, you're not, you're not playing by the... The rules we'd all agreed to. Scoffing um, loudly, using kind of slightly archaic put downs <laughs> strike him St. joy and very roughly when a person with some social grace sees a flaw in something they might say uh just wanted to let you know love the video uh, but there's uh, there's one thing here which uh, i think we should point out dot 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 i'm not a cunt whereas someone who hasn't kind of acquired those skills comes in hot with i cannot believe I can't believe that you're doing this! Say this about my train! This train has 16 wheels! Not 14! Like, and you're like, what the fuck? I, I definitely can relate to the strong language or the starting the comment with you're a complete idiot or something along those lines. All right. Um, well, now you're definitely going to win me over to your opinion. So let me listen. I've made videos on topics and I've definitely encountered my fair share of, of dicks, but I've never encountered the arrogance. A person who might disagree with my economic policy may portray me as like malevolent or something like that. But these guys just almost always come in with like, you're dumb. I'm surprised you can read. You know, actually, like you probably read with your <laughs> finger on the page slowly tracing each line with like some <laughs> spittle dribbling down the outside. You know, because that's the only way that you could ever come to the conclusion that this model of train has 16 wheels, you know. <sighs> Unbelievable. Like, as I said at the start, imbecile. 
it's very hard to talk to people like that because it's just you're not used to engaging with that level of sort of hyperbole and energy and sort of passion. It's strange. Like there are so many issues you can talk about that are f- fundamentally more important. Like, I don't know, education, healthcare, And like you'll never have someone at your throat about some basic or minor thing. You're a person who's really into this stuff, right? So I imagine there was a point where you were like, I'm into this stuff, but these guys are really, really into this one specific type of this stuff to the detriment of all other things, not only in this category, transport, but also in the entire world. Realizing it was a thing and realizing it was a problem were very different moments, I think. I think realizing it was a thing would be just like when I used to be on the transit Facebook groups. I think it was like seeing pictures of people who were like, this is bus number 2467. Uh, and it's like not a nice new bus. It's like an old bus, like a but like a 90s bus. So it doesn't look very good. And they like... They got pictures of every inch. They got the front. They got the wheel well. They have the underside of the steering wheel, um, the steering column as well. And they got the seats and the engine compartment. Or they and they maybe they left a comment like the, the bus the bus driver like chased me out of the transit <laughs> station or because I was taking pictures or something and and he didn't like it. Yeah, listen to that bell. Oh, take a look at that. Oh my God. Listen to that horn! Oh my god! Oh, she's beautiful! And like, hey, you know, I take lots of pictures of buses and trains too. So, you know, more power to people. I think it's just the intensity uh, of some people's energy that uh, takes it to another level. All right! Oh my... Oh! 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 Oh no, it's a PL2 too! Oh, oh, the SNC-52! Oh my god! Like when I first realized it was a real problem was when I was discussing the REM with people. There's this love of these old trains that are being replaced with the new sleek metro trains. And they're sort of like, oh, like the old stuff is it's so nice. And so it's it's got a certain quality to it that I really like. And we're replacing it with this new thing. And it doesn't have the same character and the trains aren't made in Canada. And it's they don't like how it looks and they don't think it's got the kind of old timey train feeling that the old trains had. And so they make some criticisms. Some of them feel valid and a lot of them just feel like thinly veiled. I like the old trains. I want the old trains back. At first you're like, okay, like they're just a fan. But then you realize that they're having a negative impact because the trains, however they look, is sort of irrelevant to the average person who just wants to use the transit to get where they want to go. If they're trying to argue for something that's going to make the trains come every 30 minutes or every hour, that's an extra hour potentially of commute time for an like an everyday blue collar worker or for someone who's just trying to go see their family. And so by pushing for what they think is aesthetically nice and what they think is kind of historically better and all of these things, they're actually making transit worse because what's in their heart is not what's best for transit. It's kind of what train do I like the most? I just loved the concept of railways and steam engines. You don't really see that in a lot of other policy areas, I guess. For example, I don't think you see people pushing for smaller class sizes because they remember the days of the schoolhouse out on the range where the teacher would teach all the grades of students together and she'd throw the book at them and all these things. And and so we need to go back to the old style of teaching. We can put this all under the sentimentality heading, right? And it's hard because um, I totally feel this across so many things that we have a hard time with as society, right? Where we have this beautiful old church and it's in this really great place. It's important to people and it makes them feel like they're part of a society that's existed for hundreds of years. But 
there's a housing shortage that could be like 100 people's houses. And we have this stuff all the time. We don't want to be 100% practical. What's the joy in life to that? However, when we're talking about something that it is first and foremost a transportation method. It's unfortunate that the advocacy groups for transport has such a high proportion of people who are regressive. You know, it's not like you have, say, enthusiasts about Apple products wanting Apple products to just be what they are now forever. The enthusiasts in technology are enthusiastic about change and the new stuff coming in and they get excited about it. So it pushes those firms. It's kind of well known that railways and transit are pretty conservative uh, areas, not in the political sense, but in the sense of, you know, there's a way we used to do this and we're going to do it this way for the rest of time. If you look at like Japan or Germany or something where they are very innovative, they don't have that problem. But in North America, we have this kind of railroader culture of like, there's like an old guy who wants to pull the whistle and shovel the coal into the engine and fire it up. And it's just, uh, it's not something that necessarily we want to continue with. So in cycling in the 1980s and 90s, sports cycling was what cycling was to North Americans. So that's like spandex, clip-ins, you know, super thin tires, racing, not practical commuting. So for a long time, the advocates of cycling and the people who kind of pushed for it were this one type of cyclist. And it was a very small set because most people were in cars. Because trains went through this great squeeze the people who are enthusiastic about trains are, are this kind of like select group of keen train people. Whereas in other countries where traveling by train is just a normal thing you do, there's enough um, mass of just regular people who are like, I'm trying to get to work. To make the discourse more balanced and, and more representative of what the society is like at large. Trains are such an oddball thing in North America. Not that many people commute by train on the whole. If you're like, you like trains or something, you become this sort of social outcast by default because it's just weird and unusual. Whereas in like France, you'd just be like the standard person who's like, yeah, I take the TGV down to the south and go to the beach uh, on the weekends. It sounds great. You're like, what the fuck are you talking about? It's fastest and cheapest way to get there. That's why I take the train. What do you mean? Do you like trains? Yeah, I like going to the beach. What are you talking about? When you post a video, you'll see all of these things that we're talking about. You know, the first one we're covering, the sentimentality issue. I saw that. When people said, it's important for Churchill, Manitoba to have its train line because people there love their train line and it's important to them. And there's one guy in the comments arguing with these guys who are obviously train guys. And he's saying like, I live in Manitoba, the train is for tourists. The train is for tourists, tourists take the train. The hilarious thing is I'm pretty sure the Churchill rail line was shut down for like two years because it got like flooded. And so if it's really that essential, how come it was left in like non-usable condition for years at a time? So they built an ice road out to Churchill during the um, rail line shut down. And yeah, that is another point is, yes, they do have a port. I lived in the far north, right? And there's a lot of communities that are fly-in only or barge only. And yeah, Churchill, like when I was doing a video, I did this kind of analysis on the price to keep the train line um, versus uh, a subsidized flight. And the subsidized flights would be cheaper for the government to offer. The residents don't take the train because it's four days. And like living in Yellowknife, for example, as soon as the flights in Yellowknife were getting anywhere near close to the bus price, the bus lines shut down. You've got whatever, two or three weeks of holiday a year. You do not want to spend four of them driving. 
and driving is like a pain. You have to get the hotel and all that other stuff, you know, it, it quickly like stacks up. So it didn't take long. As soon as WestJet came in, the bus was gone. And like in Churchill, yeah, the locals, they fly. A lot of the tourists, they train up and then they fly out. So really like for that line to work, they got to find a freight use for it. You know, that port has got to be to retool and, and become the supply hub for the whole north or, or something like that. Because for passenger rail specifically, that's just not a good enough excuse. You know, and I mean, like I literally, the guys in the comments are like, it's the most reliable form of transport and it's the cheapest. And you're like, it's the most expensive and it's incredibly unreliable. It's actually not even operating right as we record, I think, because it's been flooded. It's sort of all these self-fulfilling prophecies. We build unsustainable infrastructure or we support the continuation of using unsustainable infrastructure and it doesn't get funded. So the quality deteriorates. Um, and it doesn't get funded because it makes so little sense to pay for it in the first place. And since we're not spending money on it, our expertise leaves the country and goes somewhere where they are spending money on functioning stuff that makes economic sense. And so then even our good stuff isn't very good because we don't have the good engineers. They went to the UK or maybe to the US, but probably to like the UK or Europe. And then now everything costs a ton because we have to go pay for other countries to come build stuff for us. Whereas if we had like a couple of train lines that actually either like came close to breaking even with a little bit of a subsidy or or something like that, we'd have this kind of like core permanent job. Golden egg. So this brings me to another thing which I think is probably the worst and most frustrating thing in the video. Um, what do you call them? Tankies. The like people who are like, the only way to solve any problem is through a kind of traditionally left wing ideology. You know, so they're like, there's no such thing as too much of a subsidy. Yeah, pay $5,000 per person, no problem. The government should be funding this um, forever. That attitude is what creates the slippery slope that causes so many of the problems we have. When you have this attitude that there is no price that is too high, then you will pay any price. And we do pay any price for an insane amount of things. Some of the people who watch my videos from Melbourne sort of have this like, um, negative view of me now. And there's a massive project happening right now under the current government in Melbourne and Victoria uh, that is called the Suburban Rail Loop. It's meant to be like an underground train line going through the suburbs around Melbourne in a big circle. It's got a good goal, which is to sort of connect the suburbs that only have these rail lines that go into the central city. But it's like the cost is just unbelievably high. It's for the first 26 kilometers, it's almost a billion dollars per kilometer. It's underground in the middle of suburbs that, you know, where in Montreal it would be elevated or whatever. And, and at the same time, in suburban Melbourne, the buses run like every hour, every 30 minutes. Some of them are better, but most of them are terrible. And so I said, like, if you want to make the transit better, you should get better bus service and rethink this project because it costs way too much. And I just got so many comments. You don't know what you're talking about. I used to think you knew what you're talking about, but you clearly just know nothing about Australia. You really shouldn't be commenting on stuff in this country. Some of them went onto Reddit and like started threads about how I don't know what I'm talking about. My videos are full of misinformation and stuff and sending me emails and all of these things. And I was shocked because it was like, clearly this is a bad solution. We complained that the subway in New York costs X amount and you want to build a train in suburban Melbourne that costs, you know, more than that. And I'm the crazy one.
the climate implications of this were not understood by the creator of this video. You'll get that sometime. Oh, absolutely. When you say to them, actually, um, because there's so few people in that train, that locomotive towing that very, very empty train, you know, a thousand kilometers, it's really, really bad for the environment, actually, compared to a bus. Buses, because they're so popular and because they're so full, they've become very efficient. They can also be, they can be electric these days. So you have new buses versus these really old trains too, right? Yeah. Oh, and then they'll be like, oh no, you need to get a, you need to get a new train. That's the solution. You need to make the whole line electric. And you're like, there's no one on this line. You're main Do you know how much carbon production of steel emits? Don't, don't get into that because people will say to you, batteries, batteries need lithium. Don't you know how lithium is mined? Only one mineral is bad to mine and like all of the copper and steel that we need to get uh, to do other uh, schemes for electrification is somehow, it's okay, but lithium is evil and and we can't get that sustainably, but everything else we can get sustainably. This person doesn't understand uh, anything because they've totally ignored the um, carbon emissions of the production of batteries. And you go, no, I haven't. It's in the fucking, it's in the references. It takes 2.3 years before it's offset the emissions or whatever, you know. Guess what? I checked it. I went into it when I created the video being like, I wonder if it is. I'm not sure. Sometimes in the comments, you'll see a thing where you're like, good point, guy. You you, you picked up something. I missed that. But 99% of the time, I've like spent three fucking months researching this thing, thinking about it. I'm like having a shower in the morning. I'm like, oh, that thing, you know, I thought about it, <laughs> you know, if it's not in the video, it might be because it's not a good point. They immediately assume that it's because you're a moron and you're like, you've been watching my shit for years. What? I just suddenly overnight, like I, I rolled over into my sleep onto a nail that went into my ear and, and my IQ dropped 50 points. Like what? People will say things like, oh, if if they thought XYZ or if they researched XYZ, they should have included it in the video. If your video was three hours long and you went into the nuance of every single detail, then maybe no one would watch it and you would be on the street not eating dinner that night. They obviously haven't seen your your uh, live streams where you're until hour three and you're like, uh, platform screen doors, yes, that makes sense in that situation, but I wouldn't use it in Barcelona there because, uh, you know, the platform height is, is too high for it and obviously you don't have a passenger traffic required. Also, the system's over budget by two $2 billion, so I don't think that's necessary. I'm yawning because I'm so tired. Um, the thing about e-scooters that's nice is they fold up really small. What it exists for is purely to drain out because people ask so many questions like that. Like, and I'll often do this in my own, my own things. I've sent so many people your direction where I'm like, yeah, I'm not a transit YouTuber. I make videos for, for fucking pol politicians and like intelligent people who are interested in a bunch of Canadian topics. I'm not the guy to talk about the fucking platform screen doors. <laughs> Reese makes shitloads of videos. He makes so many more videos of me, uh, than me on these topics. And he's my friend and I trust his judgment. Go over there. But you know that transit people are incredibly passionate because I'm pretty sure when you do transit videos, they're, for better or for worse, they're always popular. People always want to watch them. And I get it. I like transit, but I think I'm kind of a normal. Do you want more nurses or do you want? nurses guys like we've got a nurse shortage you know it's sort of this traditional green movement you know like the anti-technology luddite side of the green movement that for example suggests that something newer than trains or something like buses for example are worse just because they're like new and they're the same people who they said electric cars were impossible now that the you know economy and 
companies figured them out. Electric cars are now evil. And, you know, it's this sort of progression between things that either aren't possible and then now it's just a bad thing once it is possible because we figured out how to solve that problem. So, Paige, what I want to know is, you know, fundamentally, if someone is arguing that, you know, we should subsidize via rail or someone is arguing that they should build a train system in their city that costs too much, but at the end of the day, it's like trains are good, transit is good. Is there actually a reason to argue against this? Rant mode triggered. Uh, neoliberal robot. Whoa, careful, careful. Don't use, that's a dirty word. The classic criticism that's always leveled at the left is that they don't know how to manage the economy. They're not like mature with finances, you know? If you want to win, if you're a person who believes in like big government, big government expenditure, the thing you need to do to see your side flourish and win is to at least appear to be very interested in making sure that any money that you do get given is spent efficiently. You're not going to get a lot of ground by being like, I am A, a socialist, and B, don't care about efficiency at all. It's like, God, that's, that is price. hard. We should pay any price. Light the money on fire. I don't care. That's rich people's money. You know, like that, that's bad. I mean, also, if you believe that we're not taxing the wealthy enough, then you also should acknowledge that the money that you're spending isn't rich people's money. It's mainly working class people's money. All you need to do is go like, we've got 15 rail lines cut the three most inefficient and put that money into the most efficient ones. It's not even a change the amount of money, just showing an expression of interest and efficiency. It really gives you a lot more power when you, at the very least, feign an interest in the thing that they don't expect you to say. And then you can get away with whatever fucking steam train to fucking Mount Tremblant or whatever the goddamn hell you want. Even if you're super progressive, you think the best thing at the end of the day is reduce the emissions, more people on trains, etc., which means that, yeah, you might have to give up some of the lines that kind of go to the middle of nowhere. Sorry, places that are the middle of nowhere. But if that means more people on trains, then you're fundamentally your goal has been attained. I think sometimes people have this goal that like, not only should more people between Toronto and Montreal use the trains, but people from Toronto to small Ontario towns should also all be using the train. And like, yeah, that's a good goal. But frankly, the way to get there is probably to create an incredibly successful system, then just edge your way out. And it's like you've built that strong uh, kind of core competency. It's kind of look at what the Go train is doing. It's like exactly that. It's like they created a really efficient operation that sort of centers on the most profitable stuff. And now they're able to run some trains to Niagara Falls, where not that many people are using it. But it's like, it's not that big of a hit for them because they're really efficient and they know how to run the trains well versus this. Imagine if the their approach was the first thing we're going to do is implement a train from Niagara Falls to Toronto. And if it's not successful, the whole system is a failure. If this is a democracy. You will be replaced with someone who, who will either do that or who doesn't care about trains and will just axe the whole thing and let's build more highways because trains carrying no one does look terrible and it isn't actually environmentally friendly. You can look at it as like two competing network effects in essence, right? In Canada, we're in a sea of people who own cars and every highway that you add to wherever has ridership immediately. It jumps onto it out of a road network. Trains, we do not have that. We need to seed it with like very, very good transit networks. And now we're at the point where I think we do have really good transit networks in Montreal and Toronto. Now we need to connect these two fuckers together so that a person who's friends with someone in Toronto 
can go see someone in Montreal and no car is involved. It's that kind of door-to-door, no-car thing. You're trying to just build it out across the country. Imagine you have a train between Toronto and Montreal that becomes like 40, 60% of the market share, and it's incredibly popular. Imagine just connecting up Quebec City then. You don't need to worry about if even if Quebec City will initially be that much of a source of travelers because all these people in Toronto and Montreal would love to go to Quebec City and visit or go for business or all these other reasons, and they're naturally going to take the train. And, and so you have all of that to buffer the initial time it takes for people from Quebec City to be like, this is a great option. We're going to take it too. And because your network is operating at such a high level, you know, you have the money to spend on new trains and you can make them fast. And, you know, you're actually being competitive with other modes of travel instead of spreading yourself so incredibly thin that everything feels like a lower tier of service. Imagine if you didn't have the subsidy built in that's required to subsidize a lot of routes that aren't necessarily effective, and you could reinvest that subsidy on making it an actually great experience. Instead of being where where Europe is in the 80s and 90s, we could be where Europe is today. We truly could if we wanted to. And I think there is also this defeatism that's like, we're never going to be good. What's the point in even trying? I see so many comments like that where it's like, we'll never be Europe. We'll never be Japan. So there's no point in even trying to emulate them. We're at the point where like a private company could probably come in if they had deep enough pockets, get the loan, build the thing. And if they had government cooperation and actually run it as a successful, profitable rail line, because they just have to be $80 a ticket. And if they can do it in like two and a half hours, people pay $150 a ticket. And they'll eat, they'll just eat everyone's lunch. There's this attitude that I don't like, which is when people are like defending stuff that is clearly a shortfall. We know that HFR won't be really high speed. People kind of invent reasons why that's actually good or that isn't a bad thing. The slow train is a better thing because it's going to serve all these little towns. And it's like the majority of people, including the majority of people who are poor, are living in the big cities. So no, it's not like a altruistic thing to have slow trains that stop at all these places. It hurts the majority, which is in the cities, which is the majority of the people who actually truly do need these services more than anyone else. This is also another thing. It is very noticeable that the countries that do not have ProRep had a fucking hell of a time building high-speed rail. They're just not that motivated to focus on population because that's not what first past the post does. It focuses on writings over population. And it's just like, gotta get it. We gotta get this fucking roadblock. We gotta get over this hurdle, you know, of devaluing population and, and valuing land. It's, it's ridiculous. For sure. There's a tendency to have a kind of like left wing kind of ideology on this, like, oh, it needs to be supported. Corporations can't be trusted with these things. I think as a product of the railway system, originally, most of them were built by for-profit corporations. Back before the age of the automobile, it was a good business. Build a railroad, it's the fastest way to get from town to town, faster than a horse, and that made them money. They didn't do it as a charity, it was a good business. Cars came along and obviously subsidies went into highways and all these other things, and there's all these reasons that it occurred, but then it stopped being a profitable business. And so these private companies were like, we don't want to do trains anymore. And the government picked up the slack and was like, okay, well, we'll do the, we'll do the trains. And they started these operating companies. They purchased these private failing railway lines that had built their business around passenger travel. And so a lot of these train guys, when they were younger, they remember the thing that let them ride on a train was state-owned enterprise train line. Um, And they liked it because it was a heavily subsidized ticket. So super cheap. 
and they're often like sitting on the train and they're like one of the only people in the carriage. And it's great. It's luxury travel subsidized by the government, which is awesome to experience. You know, it is very nice and you get to experience it if you go to Santerre, you know, beautiful scenic railway line. It costs uh, Canadian taxpayers $1,500 to send you there and you only had to pay $200. I'm sure it is awesome. You know, who's not going to love that? You have to understand that that's not sustainable, right? Like, truly. It's not fair. Like, do you wonder why, like, I mean, to people in Quebec, you fucking wonder why people in Calgary are pissed off at you. You, how many railway lines does Quebec get to have? And people in Calgary get zero. And they have to pay for yours. Like, that's the stuff that makes, like, holding Canada together hard. It's not fair that your hobby is being subsidized by other Canadians. They have different priorities. They have some kids. They want some more money in the school district. They want the local town to have their pool subsidized so they can go for a swim. But you get your train. You get to go on holiday on your, your luxury train, um, you know, with them forking out to pay. It's not fair. So in the 80s when the like, neoliberals took over, these state-owned, enterprised, heavily subsidized train systems that were losing so much money kind of lost too much money. And governments started to have a hard time selling their bonds and financing the operations of the government. And they had to sell, like basically they hit rock bottom. So they started selling this fire selling, this stuff off to the private sector. And yeah, like they, Canada fucked up. We sold CN and when it was privatized, all they did is basically do exactly what the government should have done in the first place. But, you know, the government couldn't do it. They just trimmed off all the, all the crap and kept like what actually worked and started making tons of money. Unbelievable amounts of money. That could have been our money if the government was prepared to cut the garbage routes in exactly the same way that it could be our money if via rail cut the garbage routes. It is the inability of a political system to make the like ruthless business decisions that a corporation can make. That's how things work, you know? But their attribution of like, oh, the good thing is when the public owns it. No, it's not. The good thing is when it's popular. The original version, where it worked, where it was, where it was a rational thing to do. And no, train systems can make money. At the very least, the operators can make money. I don't really mind being like, okay, the government's always going to fork out for infrastructure and that's paid for by taxpayers. That absolute fallacy that train operating companies can't make money. You're like, so are all those train operating companies that jump on open access agreements, they're just, they're just doing it for fun? And the good ones, the good ones succeed and move on to the next round. Like, it's that simple. During the pandemic, when the UK had a lot of problems, obviously the UK has problems with its rail network. But when people were like, the franchise system is a failure because during COVID, it's not profitable. It's kind of like, um, what do we expect? We expect any train service to be profitable. It does, this doesn't really change anything. It's an emergency situation. Yeah, it's kind of like saying like, oh, well, um, socialized medicine failed because look, the hospitals are fucking collapsing under the pressure of COVID. No, it's just really hard. It's just a really hard time for everyone right now. Public hospitals are failing in, the, in Canada. Private hospitals are failing in the States. Like, and it frustrates me with the franchise system in the UK because... I think a lot of the problems with the franchise system are the way that the franchises were set up to be kind of like government contracts. They, they constrained those operators in, in a way that didn't allow them to actually function like a normal for-profit enterprise you know, would, where they'd be like, no, we, we don't want to do that or we don't want to behave that way. They locked them into a, to a sort of behavior. The worst of both worlds, right? Because they've got all of the overhead of the government 
and they don't have the sort of power of the government to make decisions. And passenger ridership in the UK is now higher than it's ever been, like higher than the Victorian era, right? A lot of the things where they're like, oh, the delays, oh, the price of tickets. It's That's that's because supply is constrained. They can't fit any more trains down the lines because they've become so popular. So it's like they're unhappy with with a level of success that if it happened in Canada, Canadians would be like, We did it! Not every rail line makes sense, but yeah, like there's certain ones that aren't profitable and probably don't have a chance of being profitable, but that still do make sense for one reason or another. And as you can see in the case of the UK, they operate those lines because everything else is so lean and efficient that they can afford to operate those less valuable services. And so even the places that are rural have this like pretty excellent train service because they're standing on the shoulders of giants on these bigger companies that are very efficient with their operations. When you have the sort of social credit of having a lot of successful stuff, then you can also, you have a bit more agency to sort of take on those like, okay, clearly you're buying votes or clearly you're just sort of providing this service because the train is nicer than driving or picking a bus when you have a very successful system. But in the case of Via Rail, it already isn't a great experience going between literally the two largest cities in the country. So there is no political room to be like, now we got to start up a train to, to this location and this location. If I had high speed rail that was UK level or Japan level, I would be in Montreal with Paige every other weekend, uh, like an hour and a half, two hours on the train, and it's like inexpensive and the departures are really frequent. It would be such a no brainer. But here it's like 10, 12 departures and it's the, the price is high and it's really like antiquated the way they operate things because they make you line up before the train shows up and all of this stuff. Imagine like just all of the ridership driven by a successful via rail would probably offset the sort of public ridership with all the new riders on the the city transit systems. Because let's be honest, once you're in downtown Montreal, the most obvious way to go where you're going to go is the metro and the subway is the most obvious thing to do when you're in Toronto. So like you have these captive uh, riders, you know, there's so much opportunity that we don't even have hold of yet. And we're basically building it anyways, because like now we're building trains to the airport so that the private air operators can connect people. And like, let's be honest, a lot of people are just going to take the train to the airport and then fly. And it's just the worst for the environment, uh, less convenient version of high speed rail fully privately operated. I didn't go into this in the video too much, but like the distance between Toronto and Montreal I'm, do you know, is, is there a name for this? Basically, it's, it seems to me there's this bell curve thing for distance between cities where different modes of transportation make sense and different speeds of rail are necessary for it to win out. Uh, it's sort of like a Goldilocks zone type of thing for each different thing mode. There's this interesting thing where you like model kind of like the resfit departs from his house for the airport and the resfit departs to the train station. And they're like... And they're off, you know, and you head out. And the problem is that, like, the airplane is the way to go for the Reese that doesn't care about transit. The Reese that's just like, yeah, I want to get there fast. Not winning that speed battle. It's just the difference between not maglev, not Chinese high-speed rail, just, like, very fast, conventional, that kind of higher speed, 200 kilometers an hour. That's all we need to do. We don't need to do... We don't need to do mind-blowing levels of speed. We just need to beat planes. The next high-speed rail thing should just be like beating planes. That's it. Being like, oh, you'd be dumb to take a plane. Planes suck and they're slower. 
Why would you take a plane? That's for kilometers an hour. And just aim for that and do it. Coalated and bound with a durable spine, it is the envy of published findings around the world. Canada's high-speed rail study industry. The future. Never. I brought this up on, I think, Twitter or something. And someone's like, oh, you know, to suggest that people would ever fly is just like you're so privileged to suggest this. I don't think it is. First of all, driving is not really an option for lots of people as anyone who's involved in transit should realize driving isn't actually very attractive for so many reasons. The bus isn't good. It's slower than the train and it's frankly less comfortable. And the plane is way faster. And like, yeah, people will pay a lot more for the convenience of getting somewhere fast. A few years ago, I was like following this urban urbanist sort of dude. And he was kind of complaining about how he took the via rail. They only take credit cards to pay for things. And so obviously that they're kind of excluding poor people. And it's so funny because like, I don't know if viewers know this, but guess what? Making fucking YouTube videos doesn't pay very well. I am poor as shit. Exactly. I'm in a... a... I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what poor people take because I'm fucking poor. I take a goddamn rideshare. Why do I do that? It's the cheapest option. I just can't believe that they're blah, blah, blah. They're excluding the lower class. They're not on the train, you moron. You know, they're on the goddamn bus. You're in first class and you don't even realize. We give a credit card to literally anyone in this country. Like, it's amazing. Anyone can get a credit card. You just get a credit debit or whatever it's called. You know, like I have one of those. It is just amazing having someone in a certain place telling you that like poor people don't do that or something like that. I can tell you what it's like to like go to the supermarket and look at two bags of potato and be like, uh, how many potatoes should I eat? It's just very, by the way, uh, Patreon, uh, if you jump on Patreon there, you could uh, get, me, get me those nice russets or some of the golden, the little golden ones. Paige only gets the cheap potatoes these days. This is going to be truly heresy, but since we're on Canadian Civil, I think I can say it. I previously owned a car. So yeah, I know. I've now ascended to the moral high ground. But the amazing thing to me was when this guy, he was sort of like, you know, poor people drive and like the hard ones off are the ones driving. And I'm thinking like, I got rid of this car and I'm saving money. I'm in a better financial place. And yet you're telling me as someone who's supposed to be transit oriented that I should really just be driving to Montreal. I shouldn't be taking the train or the bus. I should be driving. It's amazing how many transit supportive people in Canada drive every day. So many arguments I've got into with people and I think like, oh, this person is super passionate. They're like deeply pro-transit. They probably don't own a car. And like every time the person they own a car, they drive every day. And like, I don't. I truly understand the struggles of someone who depends on transit. I think I would put that in the kind of sentimental class. Like a lot of the time you'll get that with those dudes. They fly to a train to take the train because they like the journey and then they fly home. And then they tell you that they want to keep the subsidy on the train. And you're like, you made the rational choice to get there to have your holiday experience. It's not a holiday experience for other people. It's, it's how they get to work. Anyway, Reese, good talking about trains honestly i had a really great time talking about trains it's always good i think it's because i have this like level of empathy now for your train suffering trains are great and trains are terrible they're an amazing mode of transport that like my emotions are sometimes derailed i'm just so excited for that day that will occur in our lifetimes where we get off the fucking high-speed train in toronto and just being like god you you just you almost want to scratch it under the seat like you have no idea kid how hard this was to get. <laughs>
that's so much of the value of like YouTube is that we have these niches and we have people who cover various things. And like, instead of like, I'll, I'm always amazed at like sort of the traditional media, they kind of cover stuff in the most sort of boring, unexcited, uninterested, but also just sort of uninformed way. It's not really an attack against the journalists or whatever. It's just that they're, they're very like, they don't have an underlying message they're really trying to tell. So they just kind of barely modify the press brief and then sort of release it again. I think that's why YouTube is so successful is because you find someone who's passionate about a topic and you just listen to them because they've probably thought through all this stuff, right? And you talk about like so many things at this like excruciating level of detail that if I were to watch like a news report, it probably wouldn't talk about a lot of the things anyways. It doesn't even cross people's minds is something that people would either care about or be interested in. But it's also that it's just not always sexy to talk about like the film tax credits and the potential impact on the economy or brutalism, like which is amazing because so many of these things are actually deeply popular. But it's just like the traditional media is like out of touch with that completely. They suffer for it because I think that people actually have a deep yearning to not be blasted with like, two minute pieces of information from that day that have no analysis and insight to them and actually do really want to walk away from uh, infotainment, let's call it experience, because that the news is infotainment and what we do is infotainment. We are competing products, you know. It is not pure analytical. It is it is to make you kind of laugh a little bit and you know think a little bit, right? Those guys I think make junk. It could be a lift driver to take a woman to a clinic who could be sued. That stresses people out and is all flashy and for show. I'd like all the Christians out there to start praying. Please pray that God will lead me through the wilderness right up to him. Dog, thank you very much. Good luck to you. And I think that a lot of people these days are looking for something that's like, no, I'm honestly gonna try really, really hard to present this information as accurately as I can so that you walk away from this actually being smarter for the rest of your life knowing a thing and using that when you go to vote and when you go have a discussion and when you see something happening down the street and you go, oh, that's that thing. And you might come away from it and be like, you know, like this guy says X, Y, and Z and I don't really agree. But at the end of the day, you actually still came out of it with at least a better sense of what the counter arguments to your own point of view is. Instead of just being bleh. Like my friend Brent always says, like CBC is like, black says black, white says white, Paige Saunders, CBC News. And you only let black say black and white say white for 20 seconds. The research is here to back this. It makes people unhappy and stressed out, you know, being like, what's going in Afghanistan? I saw this. Oh, not today. We're talking about a hurricane. You know, like that's not great. But like a video that's like, why has Afghanistan been the destroyer of civilizations? And what are the dynamics in that region? Something that like in 30 years time, you'd still be like, that's oh, it's 90% still applicable, still going on, you know, still the way that country works. That stuff is like a lot more satisfying. The news is a little bit kind of like, wooga, 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 you know. <laughs> Once you get in, it, it's so much more gratifying, I think. And I say this as someone who watches a lot of YouTube and a lot of online content as well as creates it. Exactly. Like I got into YouTube because I watched it. I watched this stuff and was like, this is great. You know, this is so much better than what's being produced by traditional media networks. The Senate is just like, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Paycheck, please. 
such a good sort of example of how you were saying before that like necessarily spending more money doesn't necessarily give you a better product. I'm sure as hell uh, that Vox has a smaller budget than like the CNNs of the world, but they seem to put out a lot more meaningful content. I, I typed out the super aggressive comment that I'm glad I didn't post last night, but I was like, do not tell me that train lines can't be profitable again. Like, the, I, I, first of all, I didn't say it in the video. I didn't say like, oh, it all needs to be profitable. I just said that the subsidies should be reallocated to the infrastructure. Rail Canada builds and maintains rail. That is where the government's subsidy or support goes, which makes sense. It's exactly what the government has done with both highways and airports across Canada. That is the most egregious type of comment. When you get a comment that's like, they're saying something that you did not say, or they are in saying that you said something and they very much misheard what you said. And people will come back and comment and say, actually, he didn't say that. He said X, Y, X, Y, and Z, and you just said X, Y. It's totally different. If you're watching this and you like what we do and you see in the comments, there's someone who's being a dick or is wrong or whatever, you arguing with them, <laughs> it's probably not good for you but it's really good for us because when the comment sits there with this total misconception and you see it start to get thumbs up and you're like, oh God, like people are agreeing with us for jumping on board of it. I didn't say that. Or like this guy needs to be challenged. When a person shows up and just says basically what I would say anyway. I don't know his name and I never met him, but thank you motherfucker. Good job. It's almost like a task getting ticked off the list that you didn't have to do. You're like, oh, thanks. Like, it's been addressed. Someone's on it. I can move on to making a video. And the problem is that on a lot of these videos, you, you end up spending... I, I just hate it. I hate how much time I spend writing out these, like, long essay replies to comments and stuff. It just it eats so much time, and I can't stop myself. I mean, it makes sense. I, I remember, and the thing that made me angry was when my family was in town, was when this whole debacle was going off on Reddit, etc. And I was, like, sitting on my phone because, like, people are saying stuff about me that's not true and that I probably should be defending myself from and arguing about. For them, it's just a comment. For me, it's just all these personal attacks that I have to respond to. Otherwise, you know, it's like having knives hanging above your head while you're sleeping. When I see someone being like a dick to you, I'll show up and just like tease them. <laughs> that's much appreciated. I think for someone like me who is a bit, I've gotten more aggressive and I try not to be because See, that's the thing is there's this total disconnect between someone watching the video and the person who created it, right? Because like they, I probably comment so casually thinking like, oh, I disagree, but I'm not really going to think it through. And when you've created that and you actually did think about it, you're like, and you dare act like I didn't think about this. You're so angry. And I think they often don't really, you know, it's not very serious for them. I also find that like a lot, to be honest, a lot of the time, especially in the video comments, when the person, if a, com if a comment comes in being like, uh, and then I'm like, hey man, da 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 da. They'll often be like pretty gracious about kind of like backing down or whatever. They probably didn't realize that like when they came in without buffering the, the statement they're gonna make with any sort of like polite niceties that show that they're on board, but like just wanna point something out. For us, it's our, it's our livelihood and so important to us. You know, for them, they're just sitting on the shitter 
banging out like a reply and then off to the next thing. They're not thinking like, well, first of all, dear sir, like, you know, like they're just like what's coming out of the brain into the phone, send. <laughs> yeah. So like we would benefit from being a little less sensitive, but I also like I block so many people. Like if I see a comment from a person and I've seen them commenting a lot and they're normally cool, I'll give them a break because I'm like, this guy cares about the stuff and watches what I what I do. They deserve a response. But if someone is like, if I don't recognize the name and they're rude, blocked. I don't even, I don't give a fuck, you know? Is it a block? It's the shadow ban feature that people don't seem to really know exists, right? They're wailing into the void. Like there are people I remember from the early days who would comment on each video and they were just always kind of a dick. And I blocked them. I'm sure to this day they're still typing out their comments that are kind of a little irritating and a little rude. Um, they have no idea. Like they're like, no one seems to respond anymore. Whatever, you know. Anybody? Because I'm sure the lack of self-awareness that would make you check what the page looks like in incognito mode to see if your comments showing up is is like the same, <laughs> you know, group of people who would write out something that's mean unnecessarily <laughs> on a regular basis. This has been so nice, this laptop. You know, I mean, it's it's got some limitations, but holy shit, is it stable and powerful for what it is. I know, right? It's a, isn't it? It is truly, I have a video planned for my B channel about this. This is those like once every 10 years, you're like, wow, life just got so awesome. And like, I guess it's probably, it's kind of what I remember the iPod being like. The thing for me that kind of is the game changer is editing computers are usually super expensive, like anything that I could use to do a decent edit on. And like, I'm not doing VFX work like you, but like even just doing some exports in, Divi in, in DaVinci Resolve, I, I would probably pay twice as much for a regular like Windows PC that was is performant for just export speed. The performance is about the same as my previous kind of gaming laptop with a dedicated GPU, but it doesn't crash and the battery lasts for a day, which is great and it's tiny. I wish I'd uh, I'd made the switch over sooner. I was holding off being like, well, it's not a professional laptop for VFX, but like, <laughs> yeah, it is actually. There's like a contingent of people that are really big PC like fans or whatever. And I probably have been multiple times in the past, but like at the end of the day, if you're trying to get work done and it's just unreliable and unstable. It's just not conducive to getting work done. Like Apple is usually just, they put out a higher grade of software and the support is there and it's just for getting work done, it's often better, I think. It's just the, the, the value of having something that doesn't blue screen on you when you're releasing a video the next day and you went to sleep and you realized that it only processed 20 frames and then crashed. Yeah, I mean, luckily we haven't been recording that long because uh, my computer just constantly crashes. So right. it's great. Right. Everyone still listening right now, please donate to Paige's Patreon so we can get a new computer. So we're pivoting over to a tech review uh, um, podcast, uh, right? It's a good time to announce it, right? <laughs>